If you turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 2, we're going to continue in studying this epistle. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses this morning. James chapter 2, verse 1. And Father, now as we open your word, we ask that you would open our hearts, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that we would grow in the knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Favoritism, favoritism, does it bring destruction? Absolutely. Can you think of a story of favoritism in your life that brought hurt or in someone that's close to you? I can think of a story, and it actually comes from Genesis. Jacob. He's got 12 sons. Can you imagine? Not including his daughters. Not my three sons, but my 12 sons. Think of the grocery bill for that particular family. It was a very complicated family. Talk about dysfunction. Well, he had multiple wives. And with that, of course, he had the favorite wife, which was Rachel. And Joseph was the first son of the favorite wife, so he received the coat of many colors. But his 10 older brothers didn't have the favored love from dad. And that favoritism just began to destroy that family from the inside out to where now Joseph, the younger brother, is coming to check up on his older brother's work. Now, if you have a younger brother, that's just absolutely miserable. One, your younger brother's not working. And number two, now he's coming to see how you're doing in your work. You may be familiar with the story. What do they do to Joseph? First, they're going to kill him. Then they decide to sell him as a slave. There's no doubt that favoritism brings destruction. Our Bible study this morning is this. Stop playing favorites. Stop playing favorites. That's the issue that James is dealing with inside of the church of God. Some people are treated this way and others are treated poorly. Some having favor and some having dishonor. And James wants us to not be a respecter of person. So here's a question as we begin, and it's this. Am I guilty of favoritism? Am I guilty of partiality? That's what we'll be wrestling with. But before we get into these 13 verses, let's do a quick review. What's the theme of this book, of these five chapters? It's faith defined. James really tells us what faith looks like as it's fleshed out in our lives. In chapter 1, we saw that we're tried by trial. That didn't really come out very good. We're tried by trial. Let me read it. Verse 2 of chapter 1. You can go there with me. It says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So faith first is tested. In order for us to know the quality of our faith, we have to go through trial. Also in James chapter 1, we saw that in confidence we're to ask God for wisdom. That faith asks in confidence and God will provide wisdom. Robert, I appreciate him teaching for me last week. And we were encouraged by the second half of chapter 1 that faith is to have action. That we're not just to be hearers of the word, but we're to be doers of the word. There's some life verses in chapter 1. Like be slow to speak and quick to hear. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That'll save us a lot of heartache if we live out those verses. So we've seen what faith is to do, but now we look at what faith is not to do. So let's look in verse 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. First, James says this. He says, 
my brethren, my brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants him to be reminded that it's from a heart of love that he's giving this exhortation. We need to be reminded of that as well this morning, that it's our loving Father that's challenging us in these truths. So we're not to take the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ and treat people with partiality, to have favoritism. Because when we look at Jesus, we see that he has no favorites. He's not a respecter of persons. And our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean when we say he's our Lord? It's that he's our master. So if he's our master, then he calls the shots and he directs us and dictates us on how we're to treat people. So God doesn't see one person higher than another. He distinguishes by those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ, but we have equal footing at the cross. And this is comforting. It's not like Francis Chan, if you're familiar with him, who God's really using and has written some great books and preached some powerful sermons. It's not that he's got the inside track with God right now. It's not like God's like, oh, there's Francis. He's praying right now. I'm gonna really listen. Or Max Lucado, who has written a lot of great books and is a wonderful pastor used by God. You, you pick your favorite Christian leader that you really look up to and, and you respect. And we may think, well, God loves them a little bit more. Or God listens to their prayers a little bit more. But that's not the case. God's not a respecter of persons. But this is also challenging for us because if God's not a respecter of persons, then I can't be either. And partiality with faith in Jesus Christ doesn't mix. The two don't belong together. God's word speaks out against partiality. In Proverbs 28, verse 21, it says, to show partiality, it's not good. Leviticus 19, verse 15 says, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Don't you want justice that doesn't have favoritism? that doesn't show an extra favor to someone who's rich or to look down upon someone who's poor. Proverbs 22, verse two says, rich and poor have this in common. The Lord's the maker of them all. Isn't that a reality? God makes the rich and God makes the poor. It's designed by the Lord. Peter had to learn this lesson in the book of Acts. He was having a hard time believing and seeing that Gentiles were loved by God, non-Jewish people. So God sent him to Cornelius, a Gentile man. Cornelius and his whole house got saved, and Peter said these words, in truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. Let's see what the problem was in this group of believers, these Jewish believers, in verse two and three. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool, most likely this is a real situation that's happening in the assembly. That's why James is addressing it. You've got the rich guy that comes in, And the ushers, they notice his rings. He's wearing the bling bling. They're like, hey, you, the front row, there's your seat. And if you pay $100,000, we'll even put your name on it forever. Right there, You you can have it. But the same day, here comes a guy with filthy clothes, a poor man, and he stinks. His clothes stink. It's the only pair of clothes that he has. If you're gonna sit next to him for a whole entire service, 
an hour and 15 minutes, a couple of hours, you're going to be suffering from the stench. And the, the ushers know this. They start doing one of these, you know. I got my eyes on you. You need to sit in the back. And they make this decision. We know there's some things that are happening in their mindset culturally. As one is you wore your rings in Roman culture to signify your wealth. There was even shops that would rent out rings for the evening so you could impress your friends. You couldn't afford this ring to own it every day, but you could afford to rent it for four or five hours to make people think that you were wealthy. And the Roman culture dominated in this time. They had colonized the known world at this time. We see it in the lives of the disciples that they thought that wealth was a sign of God's favor in your life. So if you were poor, you had done something wrong with God. And unfortunately, there's still people in the church that teach that. It's a false teaching. It's the word of faith movement. It's the blab it and grab it. If you have enough faith, then God's gonna give you a million dollars and all those kind of teaching. And for some reason, if you don't have money, there must be something wrong with your faith. Well, newsflash, Jesus was homeless. So what was wrong with his faith? You know what I'm saying? Somewhere we got a little mixed up with the life of Jesus Christ. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't have anywhere to lay my head. This issue of treating people differently based on their economic status, or their education, or their appearance, or their personality, and them getting more favor in the church because of one of those things. And then when someone lacks or doesn't have those things, that they're pushed to the back. Here's a story to illustrate this. Pastor Jeremiah Stepek transformed himself into a homeless person and went to a 10,000-member church that he was to be introduced as the head pastor that morning. So he's the new senior pastor, but he comes dressed as a homeless man. He walked around his soon-to-be church for 30 minutes while it was filling with people for service. Only three people out of the 10,000 people said hello to them. He asked people for change to buy food. No one in the church gave him change. He went in the sanctuary to sit down in the front of the church and was asked by the usher if he would please sit in the back. He greeted people to be greeted back with stares and dirty looks, with people looking down on him and judging him. As he sat in the back of the church, he listened to the church announcements and such. When all that was done, the elders went up and were excited to introduce the new pastor of the church congregation. Can you imagine the anticipation? All right, the search committee's done. We know who the new pastor's gonna be. We would like to introduce to you Pastor Jeremiah Stepek. The congregation looked around, clapping with joy and anticipation. The homeless man sitting in the back stood up, started walking down the aisle. The clapping stopped with all eyes on him. He walked up the altar and took the microphone from the elders who were in on this and paused for a moment. Then he began to recite. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. For I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then that righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? 
When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needy clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? Then the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. After he recited this, he looked towards the congregation and told them all what he had experienced that morning. Many began to cry, and many heads were bowed in shame. He then said, today I see a gathering of people, not a church of Jesus Christ. The world has enough people, but not enough disciples. When will you decide to become disciples? He then dismissed service until next week. Being a Christian is more than something you claim. It's something you live by and share with others. Now, this is a parable. This is a story. It's not a true story. It circulated social media this summer. You may have read it. It was included with a picture that made it look quite convincing that Pastor Jeremiah Sepek that this was actually a true story. But the picture is of a homeless man, and it's not of Pastor Jeremiah Sepek. But it does produce a very powerful point, does it? Someone was very creative in illustrating what we just read in Scripture. The discrimination that takes place, the partiality and the favoritism that takes place for a variety of different reasons. So first, James, he looks at the actions and he corrects the actions. Now he goes to the internal, the motivations of the heart. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, when this guy got put to the back row and the rich guy got put to the front row, it was done with evil thoughts of judgment. There was something going on inside of the heart. Now, sometimes it's just fun to burst the bubble and be honest. I don't know why, for some reason, we think, hey, we can't be honest in church, but it's the one place we should be honest, agreed? So we all do this. Every single one of us, this is something we all do in our sinful flesh. When we meet people, we size them up. And we begin to put them in categories. And a lot of it's subconscious, and we don't even realize it. And we go, that's somebody I can respect. And it's based on what things that we can see and things that we perceive. We go, well, that's somebody who's like me. And birds with the same feathers flock together, and so you're like me, and we can be friends and hang out, and then you're somebody who is not like me. And I don't think that we can be friends. And then there's even sometimes we meet people, and we go, whoa, 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 I need to be careful. You know, I need to get out of this situation as soon as possible. Uh, I think they're homeless. And before you know it, we've began to make our own judgments of people, and it comes from our evil thoughts. And that's what's being addressed here. So here's a question that I want you to ponder with me. Why do I give my favor to one person and withhold it from another? If you really stop and think about that, that's a tough question. And if we're honest this morning, I think we're guilty of favoritism a lot more than we want to realize. And maybe it is inside of our family. Maybe it is inside of the workplace. Maybe you're a manager and you've got several people that work underneath you. Why is it that one person has your favor and another person doesn't? Why is it that one kid in your family has your favor and the others don't? Why does one grandkid have that special spot in your heart while the other grandkids don't. And all of a sudden we go, man, it's the evil thoughts in my heart. Somewhere I sized that person up and I decided to put them in another category. In verse five, 
Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? What James is doing is he's changing the mindset of how they view someone who's poor. And he's saying, look, God has chosen them. And don't misunderstand this. It's not that everybody who's poor automatically goes to heaven. There's poor people who know Christ, and there's poor people that don't know Christ. Every person's the saved, saved the same way. But it's very true that throughout church history, more poor people have responded to the gospel than those of means. Jesus put it this way. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. Because riches many times are an obstacle to salvation. People trust in their riches instead of trusting in the Lord. And God's choosing is interesting, isn't it? God chooses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that. So he receives the glory. So we have our own reasons that we show partiality. But this person that we're showing partiality against is someone who God has chosen. It's a brother or sister in Christ if they know Christ as their Savior. And also speaking of the poor, they're rich in faith. They're rich in faith. You know our heart as a church is missions for the world, for the nations. And we're blessed to be involved in many different endeavors around the world. We're blessed to be a blessing. Right now, Pastor Ken, our missions pastor, and Pastor Matt, they're leading a team down to Chihuahua, Mexico. But this is what I've discovered in some missions trips, is I think we've got the wrong understanding. A lot of times we think we're going on a missions trip to teach believers in other countries something that they don't know. And that may be true, but there's things that they're teaching us that we don't know. And this really stands out to me in Uganda. A few times I've been able to go to Uganda and been able to go to Kenya. You go over there because we're Americans and we have this mindset I'm going to bless them, I'm going to serve them, and there's something I'm going to share with them. And you find yourself more impacted by them than you even are able to bring impact into their lives. And we do have a depth of knowledge in the scripture, and we're able to share that with them. But what I've found with the Ugandan believers is that they are rich in faith. They have a faith that is very humbling, that exhorts me and teaches me. Ugandan believers will pray before they take a trip in a car. They depend upon God to that degree. And it's not just this vain tradition. They really mean it. They stop and pray for God's safety and traveling mercies. It is kind of that dangerous to just hop in a car and drive around in some of those bigger cities. They have these taxis that are actually motorcycles where you can pay to sit on the back of a motorcycle and be driven around in Kampala, the capital of Uganda. And you should probably pray extra long if you're going to get on one of those. But because their circumstances and their poverty is so great, they trust God for everything. Like whether they're going to eat or not, they're trusting God for their very food. Their very humble and meager shelter of a hut, they're trusting God for that. Everything is in God's hands. And what James is saying is the poor have a place in the kingdom of God. The poor have a place to teach someone that's greater of means what it really means to trust the Lord. They're rich in faith. And also they're heirs of the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And this really exposes the heart of the issue. To drill down deep, and I like to try to look at what's the heart of the passage. And the heart of this passage is how we see people. 
And do we see people created by God for whom Christ died? Created by God for whom Christ died. And the problems that happen in our culture and our society are a sanctity of human life problem. And what do I mean by that? It's how we view human life. In my home state of Oregon, which has gone out of control in a lot of ways, it's legal for assisted suicide if you're terminally ill. That means if you're dying from a disease, you can choose to commit suicide legally. And in fact, the state of Oregon will pay for it. That should scare you. That should make you nervous. What the state of Oregon does is they do the math and they go, you know what, you're gonna cost us more alive going through treatments. So we're not gonna spend any money on your treatment, but we will pay for your assisted suicide. You know what that is? That's a problem of sanctity of human life. We don't see somebody who's terminally ill with value, that they were created by God in God's image for whom Christ died. Because if we believe that, we wouldn't be encouraging assisted suicide. Abortion is an issue of sanctity of human life, that life begins in the womb, and that baby is created by God for whom Christ died. If we believe that, that affects the decisions that we make towards a baby in the womb. The abuse of an eight-year-old is a sanctity of human life issue. If you believe that eight-year-old is created by God for whom Christ died, that will affect the way that you treat them. Marriage is a sanctity of human life issue. Do you believe that your spouse is created by God for whom Christ died? Road rage is a sanctity of human life issue. <laughs> this knucklehead that just cut me off on Powers Boulevard is created by God from whom Christ died. See, when I'm doing favoritism, and all of a sudden I'm elevating one person because of one reason or the other, and I'm demeaning someone else, I've missed the fact that we're heirs in the kingdom of God, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We go on into verse six. Well, let me ask this question before we go on to verse six, and it's this, is how do I view the poor? Because that's what all of what verse five is about. How do I view the poor? And you're saying, well, wait a second, Eric. I feel like I'm the one who's poor. I'm struggling to make my bills. I've been out of work for a long time. I lost my home. The list goes on and on. And bear with me because I'd invite you to look out of our borders for just a moment because even someone who's homeless in our country has it much better off than most of the world. We've got to realize we live in this bubble called the United States of America. And as you interact with somebody who maybe has less than what you do and that there's always someone that has less than what we have and has more than what we have. But say you see somebody who's homeless, do you kind of size them up right away and go, oh, this is their story and they're probably making more begging outside of the storefront than I make at my job and ever thought those kind of things? And we think we've got their whole life figured out. So it's a question worth pondering. In verse six, it says, but you have dishonored the poor man do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? James says, let's be real and let's be honest. Is it the poor that have oppressed you? No, it's the rich that have oppressed you. And not that all rich people are oppressive. 
There's many rich people that are in love with Christ and they're not in love with their money and they do great work in the kingdom. But historically, it has been rich people who aren't in love with Jesus Christ that oppress people to make more money. We're gonna bring oppression, oppression. We don't see people. We just see dollar signs. And James is saying, why are you trying to impress this rich man? You know it's the rich who have oppressed you and not the poor. Verse eight, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. I like how James says the royal law because Jesus is our king. He's the king of kings and he's given us these royal edicts, these royal commands that are given to us. And the Christian life is simple in the sense of what the goal is. It's not always easy to live out, but the goal is love. It's to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the commands of God in the Old Testament and the law can be summed up in those two things, love God and love your neighbor. The 10 commandments, the first four, are directed towards your love for God. The last six are directed towards your love for your neighbor. And so James says here, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. If you would consider this poor man in filthy clothes the same way as you consider yourself and love him, then you're doing well. If you see this rich man in the same way, it's not saying don't love the rich man, it's treat the rich man and treat the poor man the same way. I mean, stop and think about that. Who's somebody in your life, if you could have lunch with, you get all dressed up, brush your teeth maybe even, take a shower, get excited, let people know, hey, I'm meeting with with this person. And then somebody else that, you would not want to spend time with at all. It would kind of regrettingly have lunch with them. And examining those things, I want to love my neighbor. Now, who's my neighbor? Well, my neighbor's whoever's next to me. It's not just the person that lives up the street, down the street, across the street, apartment above, apartment below. It's whoever the Lord has placed next to you and determined to love them as you love yourself. We take care of our own basic needs. We make sure that we get those things that we need every day. So we want to in turn do that for our neighbor. Verse nine, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convinced, are convicted by the law as a transgressor. If you show partiality, you commit sin. Maybe prior to this Bible study, we would have seen partiality and favoritism is being counterproductive. On a piece of paper, yeah, you're really not supposed to do it. But in our own hearts, we go, oh, what's the big deal if I have one kid that I really connect with over the others? Because their personality's like mine. Or what's the big deal at at work if I kind of give some special favors to this one particular person? We wouldn't necessarily put it in the sin category. I mean, adultery, that's sin. Murder, that's sin. Stealing, well, that's sin. But not partiality. But God says partiality is sin. Favoritism is sin. Why? Because it hurts God's heart. Again, we're dealing with somebody that God made in his image for whom Christ died. So my partiality hurts God's heart when he sees them mistreated. When I crush them, I'm crushing the image of God. And once I've done this, then I become a lawbreaker, a transgressor of the law. Verse 10, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. Now, I got to tell you, this verse is not very popular. You're not going to find it in Bible promise books, you know, with those 
ones you get in the bookstore with all the great promises of God, you're not gonna find James 2.10. My home growing up, there was this little bread box and it had Bible verses in there. Did you guys ever have those? Pretty neat little bread of life thing that you would pull out these Bible memory verses. James 2.10 was never gonna be in there. Why? Because we don't like this verse because it doesn't grade on the curve. It doesn't say, well, 99% is good enough. And if you do 99% of the things right, then you're better than everybody else who maybe had an 80% or 70% or, God forbid, a 53%, right? See, God says if you break the law in 1%, just 1%, you're guilty of all of it. So God takes all of humanity because we've all sinned and we equally need the grace of God in order to receive forgiveness. And this affects the way we treat people when we start to realize, I'm a sinner who's received grace. You're a sinner who's either received grace or needs to receive grace and I'm going to treat you as such. Think about it this way. If a space shuttle's going up into space, if it's got one bad part, that's gonna result in complete destruction. And it's the same way for us. If we break the law in one point, we're guilty of all of it. In verse 11, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. The heart of what James is dealing with is how we rate sin. And we let ourselves off the hook. It's so easy to let favoritism go in our lives and let ourselves off the hook because we've put it down here as a one or two in the sin category. I gotta tell you, nowhere in scripture does God rate sin and go, that's a really bad one there, but that one, that's not gonna really hurt you. I mean, a white lie, that's okay. It's a white lie. It's not a black lie, right? And what James is really getting this point across is he's saying, look, partiality is something you need to take seriously in your life. So if we haven't killed somebody, but we've stolen something, then we've become a transgressor of the law. These verses very quickly show us our need for Jesus. Romans tells us that the law, is, or Galatians, excuse me, is a schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. Without the law, we wouldn't see our need for God's grace in our lives. It's hard to build a case that we could come before the Lord in our own righteousness and in our own merit. In verse 12, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. You know, maybe you're a little bit checked out and I've lost you a long time ago. Maybe we lost you somewhere in worship and you're thinking about, man, what's for lunch? Or there's some good football on today. I think some guy named Peyton's going back to Indiana today or something like that. Back to the sanctuary, back to the Bible study, back to verse 12. No, I still lost you. You're still gone. Let's try that. No. Over here. Verse 12. What's it saying? I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to not quite hear it because if you're not careful and you read that we're going to be judged by the law of liberty, you may think that you're going to have to live up according to the law to be saved. And that's not the case. The only thing that can save us is the grace of Jesus Christ. But we will be held accountable for how we lived our lives. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you know Christ your Savior, you're going to heaven. 
But in heaven, we're going to have to give an account for our lives. And that's what it's talking about. God's going to judge us by how we love, how we loved him and how we loved our neighbor. And 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what was due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is the reward seat of Christ. It's not whether you're saved or not, but God's gonna grant a reward for what you did in your body. Matthew 12 tells us that every idle word's gonna be judged at the judgment seat. Maybe even every idle text, right? Why would it matter? Why would reward matter in heaven? You say, I'm in heaven, who cares? If I wasted my life, no big deal. Well, the reward is what we get to put down at the feet of Jesus in worship. We see the crowns of, thorn, of, of the crowns being laid down at the feet of Jesus Christ. And in that moment of seeing Christ, we're want, gonna want to have things to lay down at his feet. And so it's sobering to think about. I'm gonna stand before God and give an account for my life. You're gonna stand before God and give an account for your life. And what God is gonna say, again, not for salvation, but for reward. So how did you do it, loving your neighbor? How'd you do it loving your spouse? How'd you do it loving your kids? How'd you do it loving your coworkers? How'd you do it loving those people in Starbucks? That's what he's gonna be holding us to to give that reward. God is so gracious. You know, with young kids, as you teach and train kids, you inevitably give them chores, and you pay them for those chores. Not all chores, at least in our home, there's some chores that just come because you're a Cartier and you're part of the family. And so because you're part of the family, we're all gonna chip in. But then there's some chores that are done that you can earn some money so they learn how to function with money. But inevitably, as you're giving them this chore that's new to them, they don't know how to do it, right? So it may be doing the dishes. So you're teaching them how to do the dishes properly and load the dishwasher, and then you pay them 50 cents or whatever for, for what the, the chore may be. But you had to do a lot of the work. They weren't really helping you out that much. And that's the way I see it with the Lord. He's gracious enough to save us, and then he's gracious enough to work in us so that we could actually do good in our lives. It's only through him that we do good. And then we get to heaven, and he's like, good job. I'm going to give you a reward for all of eternity for this. And it's like, wow, God, you're so good. You're so gracious to us. Here's the last verse. For judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the progression of this passage is the problem is favoritism. There's evil thoughts that motivate that favoritism. But the reason that we commit partiality is because we're judgmental. And the reason that we're judgmental towards some people is because we haven't understood the mercy that we've received from God. Because if I understood how much mercy that I've received from God, then I would pass that mercy on to others. Now, look quickly at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. So if we go through our lives sizing people up and not giving them mercy, when we mess up, we're going to be judged by the judgment that we gave out to others. I'm not saying we don't hold people accountable, that we don't love each other and truth, but as we bring that truth, keep in mind, at some point, someone's going to be holding me accountable to that same truth, 
And how do I want to be treated with gentleness and meekness? And I love this statement at the end of this verse. It says, mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the message of the cross, church. This is Jesus and him crucified. That in his mercy, he paid the price for our sins so that we could be forgiven this morning in all of eternity. If there was ever one person that could look at me and say, Eric, you know, you've got the big L. You're a loser. I don't want to spend time with you. You've blown it. You've fallen short. You're offensive. You're filthy. You're all of those things. It's God. He has every right to do that with me. But instead, he says, I love you. I love you unconditionally. I'm sending my son to die for you so that you could be forgiven, so that I could have all of eternity with the Lord. And after receiving this kind of mercy from God, how do then I go treat somebody like they're a second-class citizen? How do I go treat somebody that they don't really matter? And so that's why it's so important to first look at the grace that we've received, the mercy that we've received to extend to others. Last question, am I aware of the mercy I've received? Am I aware of the mercy that I've received? So here's the action point. Stop seeing people through our own eyes and culture and society and start seeing people that they're created by God for whom Christ died. They're created by God for whom Christ died. No better way to do that than in communion. Because in communion, we're celebrating, remembering, oh, Jesus, your body was broken for me. The bread representing his broken body. The cup representing his shed shed blood. God, thank you that I'm loved by you. But as we do that this morning, may we also remember that person that we look down upon, Jesus died for them. That person that we kind of say, hey, go to the back, Jesus died for them. And allow God through communion to begin to see people through the lens of the cross. So would you stand with me and let's pray and prepare our hearts for communion.